welcome to the Seeking Pearls podcast. My name is Rebecca Meitinger. It is a great joy to be here with you today. Today we are in our second episode in our series on the, the letter to the Philippians, which Paul wrote from prison. Last week in our first episode, we talked about how we're not exactly sure where Paul is. Most scholars believe that he is in Rome from about 60 to 62 AD. Paul was in his first Roman imprisonment. And he was in a a rented house under house arrest, chained and guarded by Roman guards, and people were able to come visit him, and he preached the gospel. And from that prison, we know that he wrote Colossians, Ephesians, and the letter to Philemon. And many scholars believe that he also wrote Philippians at that time. The second leading argument is that he wrote Philippians from Ephesus, He was in Ephesus from approximately like 53 to 56 AD-ish in that that area. And we don't know for certain that he was imprisoned during that time. But there are things he has written. Well, Luke, in, in the book of Acts, Luke describes an uproar in the city and that that it was very dangerous for Paul. He records that he was there for almost three years. And, and then in other letters, Paul refers back to those beasts at Ephesus. He writes that to the Corinthians, that he had to fight with the beasts at Ephesus. And so we know that there were some kind of great trials going on in Ephesus, whether or not he was imprisoned. And because of some of his language, when he's writing to the Philippians, because of some of his language, it sounds like perhaps... He is closer in proximity to Philippi than if he was writing from Rome. So some scholars believe that he might actually be imprisoned in Ephesus at this point when he's writing this letter. But either way, he is in prison. And it doesn't necessarily matter where he's writing from. We have not figured it out in 2,000 years, (laughs) and we will not figure it out during this podcast. But he's in prison, and... During the first episode last week, we took half of chapter 1. We read and studied Philippians chapter 1, verses 1 through 14. At the end of verse 14, we learned that he is so grateful because as he has been in prison, he has learned that the, his chains, which he thought would, he was worried, would inhibit, inhibit the preaching of the gospel in fact, has advanced the preaching of the gospel because the brothers and sisters around the church, around where he has been preaching the gospel, around Asia Minor, or throughout the, the regions that he has preached thus far, the brothers and sisters in Christ have become more confident in the Lord and have been sharing the gospel while Paul has been in prison. And also during his imprisonment, even the guards who have been guarding him have been coming to faith in Christ and hearing the gospel, which is just really phenomenal. So he is saying that my imprisonment is actually advancing the gospel. We're going to get to a portion now where he's going to address some of the difficulties that perhaps have been brought to him that have been happening while he is in prison. And he's going to address some of those difficulties And he does it very beautifully with great faith in Christ and um, such 
resting assurance in Christ. We can just see how how the the sovereignty of God and the goodness of Jesus puts Paul's heart at peace. And it's very beautiful. Another thing we're going to see in the text we read today in the second half of chapter one is we're going to continue to see this theme of Paul pressing on. So most people, as they read through Philippians and teach on it and write on it, the theme that is brought out is joy because his letter to the Philippians is filled with his joy, his joy for them, his joy in in their fellowship in the gospel, their joy in fellowship in the gospel, and then ultimately, of course, his joy in Christ. That is definitely in the letter. What stands out to me the most, though, when I have been studying Philippians for several years, what stands out to me is his theme of press on. When we get to chapter 3, he's going to use that phrase, press on, a couple of different times, very closely together. And we just can see him pressing on, persevering, enduring in joy, for certain, but the endurance he had through the hardships and the struggles that, and the opposition that were constantly coming against him, especially as we remember that he is in prison as he writes this. And prisons were extremely rugged and his hands are in chains and it was, he was undergoing great trial. And yet we just see him pressing on and pressing on and persevering for the sake of Christ and that he is ultimately pressing on. We're going to see as we get closer or throughout the letter, we're going to see that he is pressing on with a very clear vision in his mind of King Jesus who will return and we press on until that day. And it's what has always captured my heart most about Philippians. He's not going to use the words press on in our text for today, but we are going to see him absolutely pressing on. And we're going to see that attitude throughout the this half of chapter one as we read today. So with that, I'm going to do exactly that. I'm going to read the second half of chapter one, which is what we're going to discuss in this podcast, verses 15 through 30. And I will read straight through because again, it is a letter. So we're going to read straight through like a letter. And then I'll go back to verse 15 and we will take it verse by verse. So I will read in Jesus name. It is true that some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, but others out of goodwill. The latter do so out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former preach Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, supposing that they can stir up trouble for me while I'm in chains. But what does it matter? The important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached. And because of this, I rejoice. Yes, and I will continue to rejoice. For I know that through your prayers and God's provision of the Spirit of Christ Jesus, what has happened to me will turn out for my deliverance. I eagerly expect and hope that I will be in no way ashamed, but I will have sufficient courage so that now, as always, Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ, 
and to die is gain. If I'm to go on living in the body, this will mean fruitful labor for me. Yet, what shall I choose? I don't know. I am torn between the two. I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far. But it's more necessary for you that I remain in the body. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain, and I will continue with all of your progress and joy in the faith, so that through my being with you again, your boasting in Christ Jesus will abound on account of me. Whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then, whether I come and see you or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm in one spirit, striving together as one for the faith of the gospel, without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. This is a sign to them that they will be destroyed, but that you will be saved and that by God. For it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for him, since you're going through the same struggle that you saw I had, and now you hear that I still have. This is the word of the Lord. All right. Oh, there's just so many beautiful things packed into this letter. All right. So, when Paul picks up in verse 15, or, or where we picked up in verse 15 is what I should say, he had just been saying, as I previously stated, that he knows that throughout the, the regions where he has preached the gospel previously, people have come to greater courage to preach the faith. He has also been praying exactly for that, and he has asked others to pray that the gospel would go on and be preached with all boldness and without fear. <laughs> Those are prayers that we see in both Philippians and Colossians. And and that has happened. <laughs> so brothers and sisters throughout the region, throughout the churches, have been sharing the gospel. In verse 15, where I started reading today, he acknowledges one of the struggles that has been brought to him. So as they sent, so the Philippians have sent one of their brothers in Christ named um, Epa, okay, Epaphroditus. And then I heard another, uh, just recently through another podcast, heard another way of pronouncing his name. And I, I always have to work it out in my brain. That, that scholar was pronouncing his name Epaphroditus. Okay, Epaphroditus. So we're going to say Epaphroditus. <laughs> it is hard for me to know exactly how to pronounce some of these names. But so the Philippians have sent Epaphroditus to, to Paul to bring him a financial gift and also to, to share with him how they're doing, to check on him because they've heard that he's in prison, whether he's in Ephesus or in Rome, he's imprisoned. And they sent Epaphroditus to him to to check on him. And so when Epaphroditus came to him, I think that's probably when Paul received some of this information that there are people preaching the gospel who are not doing it genuinely. They're doing it uh, to stir up trouble for Paul while he's in chains. And so Paul's addressing this and he's saying, I know that some people are not preaching the gospel with with the right heart motives. 
Others are preaching the gospel for the right heart motives. Some of them are doing it out of selfish ambition to stir up trouble. And he does not get worried about this. You can see this is where his assurance is so rooted in Christ Jesus that he just has the peace of God in this, that whether the the motives are pure or not, he is choosing to rejoice in the fact that Christ is being preached. Now, there's something really important here because we know throughout all of Paul's letters that if there was false doctrine being preached, or if the gospel was being twisted in a in any way, he would make very, very clear that that has to be corrected. So clearly what we we can see here is that the motives of some people's hearts were not in the right spot, but they were not twisting the gospel. So what they were preaching, the content of what they were preaching was still accurate. And so because of that, Paul's saying, I'm not going to worry about this. (laughs) Their motives are wrong. They have selfish ambition. They're trying to maybe cause problems or And by that, what I think he means, because he uses the term selfish ambition. And so it's possible that they took this opportunity while Paul was in prison to become preachers who are more well-known than him. So Paul was limited at this point. And so they thought perhaps um, maybe my name will get to be uh, more sought after with traveling preachers and people will want to hear me come and preach the gospel rather than this Paul guy. And uh, I might get invited to give lectures in the biggest lecture halls while Paul's in prison. You know, so there's some there's some selfish ambition in there. And of course, that's not ideal in any way. The, the only name that should be sought after is the name of Jesus, right? We want Jesus's name lifted high not our own. And so it's possible that's what's going on here. But we we know what is not going on here is that the gospel is not being twisted. Theology is not being taught incorrectly. Doctrine is not being uh, presented in a way that is not biblically accurate. Because if that was the case, Paul would correct it. And he doesn't correct it here. He lets it go. And he says, look, what does it matter? (laughs) I know their heart is not exactly in the right place, but the important thing, whether from false motives or true motives, Christ is being preached. And in that, I rejoice. And then I absolutely love the second half of verse 18. It's actually like the very last phrase of verse 18. It almost is like he's... I don't know if Paul's an external processor. I kind of think he is because sometimes as he's writing his letters and you know that he is dictating them out loud, it's almost like you can see his train of thought. And as he is dictating out loud in this case, he says, yes, and I will continue to rejoice. So it's like he's out loud processing and he's making a decision here. I am going to keep on rejoicing. I could get all worked up about this, but no, I am going to keep on rejoicing because the name of Jesus is being lifted high. The name of Jesus is being preached. The motives might not all be all right, but the theology is sound. And in that, I will rejoice. And then he goes on in verse 19 and he says, 
I know that through your prayers and through God's provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, what has happened to me is going to turn out for my deliverance. So he's just, he places all his confidence in God. He places all of his confidence, all of his assurance in God through the power of the Holy Spirit. He has peace in his heart, he says, because you have been praying for me and God has provided the Spirit for me. So I am going to just just be confident that the Lord is going to deliver me. Now, we don't know yet. He doesn't know. We're going to find out in the next verse that he's not totally sure in what manner he's going to be delivered. (laughs) If he's going to be delivered um, through death or if he's going to be delivered out of prison still alive. So he's not sure how he's going to get delivered. He just knows he will be delivered in one way or another. So that whole idea of continuing to rejoice, even though, friends, did you catch that? Even though he doesn't know if his deliverance is going to be through life or through death. But one way or the other, he's going to get delivered. And so he is choosing to rejoice in the midst of trials and in the midst of being misunderstood, in the midst of opposition. He's choosing to rejoice even though the stakes are so high that he doesn't know if he's going to be allowed to live or if he's going to be killed. And yet he's choosing to rejoice. And so we just need to pause here and take a major, major lesson about following Jesus in that choosing to rejoice is a choice. And it is the right choice. I choose to rejoice. I would say that based on Paul's life and Paul's teaching, choosing to rejoice is the right choice all of the time. Under hardship, under difficulty, under uh, great opposition and persecution, under circumstances that are completely outside of his control, he makes the choice to rejoice every time. And that is phenomenal, to rejoice in Christ, even though his surroundings are not something that would call for rejoicing. He's in Christ. So because he's in Christ, he's going to rejoice, no matter what is going on around him. Verse 19, I'm just going to read it again, and then I will keep on moving through verse 20. For I know that through your prayers and God's provision of the spirit of Jesus Christ, what has happened to me will turn out for my deliverance. I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed, but I will have sufficient courage so that now, as always, Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. Whew. So he's certain that he will be delivered. He is not certain if that will be dead or alive. But he eagerly expects. So the word for eagerly expect is one that has the the idea of standing on your tiptoes and looking ahead to what is coming and, and, and trying to strain your neck out to see what is coming. So he eagerly expects, like he's standing on tiptoes, eagerly expecting and looking for what is coming. And he knows that he's not going to be ashamed. It's not going to end in shame because he knows it's either going to end in meeting Jesus face to face 
or being delivered out of prison. One of those two things is going to happen. Well, I guess either way, he gets delivered out of prison, right? (laughs) So no matter what, he's delivered from prison, either by being released to go do more ministry or by meeting Jesus face to face and being with Jesus for eternity. So one of those two things is going to happen. And I love what he says is that his prayer is that he will have sufficient courage That phrase has always just really captured my heart, sufficient courage. I think it's amazing because Paul here is not asking to to be superhuman. Paul is not asking to be um, larger than life. Paul is not praying that he could... Paul's not praying for anything that we see like in a Marvel superhero movie. Paul's not praying for strength to overthrow the world. Paul's not praying for anything that is what would, what would make a Marvel movie. <laughs> I don't know how else to say it. What Paul is praying for here is sufficient courage. Just enough courage. So enough courage for the task at hand. I He prays to have enough courage, sufficient courage, that God would give him exactly what he needs, exactly the grace, the courage, the strength, the perseverance that he needs for the task at hand. Give me sufficient courage so that Christ can be exalted in his body, whether it's through life or through death. Paul has been through a tremendous, a tremendous amount in the years since he became a Christian. Whether or not this letter is being written in about 55 AD, or if it's being written in about 61 or 62 AD, either way, his sufferings have been incredible, just an incredible amount of suffering. So in approximately, uh, well, from Ephesus, he writes his second letter to the Corinthians. So that would probably be about... 56 or 56-ish AD, he wrote the letter, the, the, the letter we have in our Bibles as 2 Corinthians. And so it, it may be a similar timing to when he wrote the letter to the Philippians, or it could be earlier than he wrote Philippians. But I want to share with you some of the things he, he writes in his second letter to the Corinthians. This This famous passage about about all of his suffering and how much his body has been through for the sake of Christ. It's in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, and I'm going to start at verse 24. I'm going to start at verse 23. He says, he's talking, he's, he's, he's being compared by the Corinthians to some super apostles, probably similar people to what he talked about earlier about people who are preaching the gospel out of selfish ambition trying to make their own name known and and not having exactly the right motives he's being compared to them and he's saying look i have suffered way more (laughs) if you want to know like my resume so-called here you go and he just starts listing this severe severe punishment that he has suffered in the last many years and, and so that's why he's doing this. He said, 
I have worked much harder. I've been in prison more frequently. I've been flogged more severely, and I've been exposed to death again and again. Five times I received from the Jews 40 lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was pelted with stones. Three times I've been shipwrecked. A night and a day I was spent on the open sea. I have been constantly on the move. I've been in danger from rivers, in danger from bandits, in danger from fellow Jews, in danger from Gentiles, in dangers in the city, in danger in the country, in danger at sea, and in danger from false believers. I have labored and toiled and often gone without sleep. I have known hunger and thirst and have often gone without food. I have been cold and naked. Besides everything else, I face daily the pressure of my concern for all of the churches. So when Paul writes to the Philippians, again, perhaps at a very similar time as he wrote 2 Corinthians, if he's in Ephesus, And perhaps about five years later, if he's in Rome, when he writes Philippians, he has been through extraordinary suffering. Extraordinary suffering by the time he writes Philippians. And his prayer is that he will have sufficient courage. I would imagine that whole list I just read out of 2 Corinthians, I would imagine that sufficient courage was his prayer for all of that. For everything he endured, God give me sufficient courage, sufficient courage, sufficient courage. At no time is he praying to be a superhero. Is he praying to be like more than human? Is he? He's not even praying that the pain would be taken away. He's not praying for really anything supernatural to occur, he is praying for sufficient courage for what he has to face. And every time, God has supplied sufficient courage. And that's why he can say, so that now, as always, Christ will be exalted in my body. No matter what they do to my body with stones or rods or whips or flogs, no matter what they do to my body, my prayer is for sufficient courage so Christ can be exalted in my body. Whether they kill me or not, would Christ be exalted? So as far as we know, the way that Paul eventually dies in about 67 AD is from being beheaded. And even there, I would imagine that Paul's prayer was for sufficient courage. Sufficient courage to go through what he had to go through so that Christ would be exalted in his body as he's being beheaded. Now, what is so absolutely amazing, this is just every time, like even just turning the page in my Bible right now for what I'm going to read to you, I'm getting goosebumps all over my body just thinking about it. Because one of the things that takes my breath away the most is um, in, uh, let me see here. Okay, in Second Timothy chapter 4, verse 18. So 2 Timothy is his last letter that we have that that we know he wrote, and um, it's very near to his death. It's it's very clear throughout the letter that he's in prison again in Rome, and this time it is going to end in him dying. And in verse 18, which is one of the last things that the Apostle Paul ever wrote down that we have, he said, The Lord will rescue me from every evil attack, and he will bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. To him be glory forever and ever. Amen. 
The Lord will rescue me safely into his heavenly kingdom. Paul got beheaded. (laughs) He was beheaded. To me, that doesn't sound like being safely delivered into the heavenly kingdom, but he was. He was safely delivered into the heavenly kingdom because no matter what they did to his body, God gave him sufficient courage so that whether through life or through death, Christ was exalted. It didn't matter what they did to his body. Christ was exalted in it. And and Jesus safely brought Paul into his kingdom at the end. It's just amazing. And here's the deal. It's going to, you and me too. You and me will be safely brought into the kingdom of God. No matter, no matter how it goes, no matter how it goes, we will be safely brought into the kingdom of God. It's just completely phenomenal. Okay, I'm I'm at verse 21 now, and this is one of the famous verses of Philippians. He says, For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. It's been one of my life verses since I was about, oh goodness, 15 or something. (laughs) Long, long time. For to me, to live is Christ. Everything in my life should be about Jesus. Jesus holds it together. It's always like, you remember how, like maybe, well, I'm an elementary teacher, so we do this, and maybe you remember doing it too, where maybe you get a plate and you cut the the plate, or you, you draw lines on the plate as like pieces of your life or whatever, and it's pretty common for people to make one piece of the pie, the pie of their life, like one piece is Jesus or God. And what this verse is saying, no, 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 no. (laughs) Jesus is not a piece of your life. Jesus is your life. Jesus is the pie. He is the plate. The The whole of your life should be in Christ. Jesus is the one in whom you function in every way. He is the one who holds your entire life together. So Paul, that is that is what it is for Paul. For to me, to live is Christ. He is the point of my entire life. He is my very breath. He is everything to me. And to die is actually gain. To die is to be with him. To live is Christ. And to die is gain. Now, in verse 22, we're going to see one of these again where I think he's just thinking out loud. And I just love this insight into his processing. He's thinking out loud in verse 22. If I'm to go on living in the body, this will mean fruitful labor for me. Yet what shall I choose? I don't know. I'm torn between the two. I desire to, to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far. Okay, remember remember what he's been through. That's why I read to you from 2 Corinthians chapter 11. He has been through more suffering than you and I will ever go through, more than likely. Very, very few of us are ever going to suffer in a way that's similar to how the Apostle Paul suffered. Now, please don't misunderstand me. I understand that there is great, great suffering in our world. There's horrible suffering going on around the world. 
And then you add on to that the suffering of illness and disease and cancer. And I mean, there is tremendous suffering going on in the world. But very few of us are called to the level of suffering for the gospel that the Apostle Paul went through, especially very few of us living in, like I live in Fargo, North Dakota. As far as Christian persecution goes, there is basically none here. And, uh, and I know that that will one day change, but I, I would be surprised if it changes to the degree, to the degree where I am suffering for the gospel in a way that is anywhere near what the early church went through. Around the world they are, but not here. And so when we read this and we understand what he's been through, it's like, yeah, of course he wants to depart and be with Jesus. But in verse 24, he says, but it's more necessary for you that I remain in the body. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and I will continue with all of you for your progress and joy in the faith. So that through my being with you again, your boasting in Christ Jesus will abound on account of me. Now, please note, he's not saying that they're going to boast because of Paul. No, they're going to boast in Christ Jesus. He just wants to keep on ministering, keep on preaching the gospel, keep on uh, encouraging them in Christ Jesus, bolstering up their faith in Christ so that they can continue boasting in Christ Jesus so that they can be more and more and more confident of the Lord Jesus through the ministry that Paul has been called to. He doesn't want them to boast about him, not at all. So I love how this process goes starting at verse, uh, well really this whole section. (laughs) I just think it's so cool how we get to see him think out loud. That he's like, oh, what should I choose? Even though, is it really his choice? No. But as he talks through it, he's like, no, okay, the Lord is going to have me stay. Like, I just love, like, I think as he's talking out loud, the Lord must just say to him, no, Paul, you're going to (laughs) stay. No, Paul, you're not done yet. You're going to stay. You're going to get out of prison this time. And and Paul's like, oh, okay, convinced of this. (laughs) I know I'll remain. Verse 27, whatever happens, whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner that is worthy of the gospel of Christ. Whatever happens, conduct yourselves, live your life in a manner that is worthy of the gospel of Christ. Live for Jesus. Live for Jesus. Make choices that would align with Jesus. Live your life in such a way that people can see Jesus. Today uh, in church, our, we're, we're studying the parables right now in church. And today our sermon was about on the parable where Jesus is talking in Matthew 13 about, about two things, the mustard seed and that the kingdom of God is like the mustard seed that grows and grows and grows. And then also like yeast that you just put it in bread and it spreads throughout the whole the whole the whole loaf of bread and it it impacts the entire loaf of bread even though you can't see it 
and he said, do yeasty things. <laughs> Yeast does yeasty things. And if we are believers in Jesus, we can't help but go into the world and do yeasty things. And I just love that. I told my family that I'm going to put that on the fridge, just a sign that says, do yeasty things. Live a man in a manner that is worthy of the gospel. Live like Jesus. Be yeast in the world. Be salt in the world. Be light in the world. Live in a manner that is worthy of the gospel. Then, Paul writes, whether I come and see you or if I only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you are standing firm in one spirit, that you're striving together as one for the faith of the gospel. So here's something really interesting. This, this phrase that is being used, the Greek word that's being used for strive, that you are striving together as one for the faith of the gospel. It's a Greek word that is pronounced synathleo. And you might be able to hear the word athlete in there, synathleo. It's the same root word that gives us the word athlete. And so it should bring together an image of a team working together to have victory. Uh, soldiers working together, struggling side by side in battle. Um, it's This is a, a sentence out of Chuck Swindoll's book on Philippians. He says, it's a blood, sweat, and tears kind of a term that implies courage, solidarity, and fighting to the finish. Be unified. Be unified with your church body. Remember, Philippians was not written into an individual. It's written to a church. So as a church body with the people surrounding you, we talked about this last week, the people that you are pressing on together with, your partners in the gospel, with your partners in the gospel, strive together as one for the faith of the gospel. Work hard. You are in a battle together. Strive together. And then in verse 28, he says, without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you, this is a sign to them of their, that they will be destroyed, but that you will be saved and that by God. For it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for him. Since you are going through the same struggle you saw I had, and now you hear that I still have. All right, so he wants them to be unified, to fight together, battle together for the kingdom of God, for the gospel, work together. Don't be afraid in any way by those who are opposing you. So whether you are being opposed by humans or by spiritual forces of evil uh, who are working through humans, and anytime that you are in Ephesians, we learn that our battle is not against flesh and blood. So it's not actually, there may be humans that oppose you, but your battle is not against those humans. Your battle is against the spiritual forces of evil that are working through other people to oppose you. So we want to make sure that we are, we are not fighting against people. Our, as, we, as we work for the Gospels, we fight for the Gospels, we contend with each other and work side by side, blood, sweat, and tears for the Gospel. We are not working against people. We are working for people. Oh, we are working for the, the world that God so loved that he sent Jesus. We're working for the world and we're working against the spiritual forces of darkness that, yes, they do often work through other people. 
but the people are never, ever, ever the enemy. The spiritual forces of darkness are the enemy. And in 2 Corinthians, the church is having a problem with, with a man who has committed great sin. And they've, Paul's already written to them about it, and they've written to him about it, and he's telling them to make sure that they forgive him because he has repented of his sin. And he says, make sure you forgive him. And then he says this in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 10 and 11, he says, Anything that you forgive, I also forgive. I have forgiven it in the sight of Christ for your sake, in order that Satan might not outwit us, for we are not unaware of his schemes. So what he's saying here is that when we hold unforgiveness against other people, when we let other people get in the, and sin, uh, get in the way, or like we hold grudges against one another when we are disunified, because of what people have done or what people have said or different oppositions that are coming at us, when we allow that to disunify us or ununify us, I'm not sure which word is correct there, when we allow that to cause division in our churches, that is Satan. That is a scheme of Satan to cause disunity within the body of Christ, within the church. And and Paul tells the Corinthians, no, we are forgiving this. We are moving on. We're, he's forgiven and we're moving on because we do not want Satan to think that he has outwitted us. We are aware of his schemes. His scheme is to cause division. So here he's like, work together, strive together, be unified in the gospel. And as you work toward the gospel, do not let, do not let the forces that are opposing you, do not let them get get you all riled up. Do not let them cause division. Do not let yourself be afraid of that um, because your unity, your unity, in verse 28, it says this, this is that you guys are working together, your unity. This is a sign to them that they will be destroyed. The unity of the body of Christ is a sign to the enemy that he will be destroyed. Be unified with those who are your partners in the gospel. The people that God has put around you to press on together, be unified with them. Be unified with your body of Christ, with your church body. Be unified so that the enemy knows that he is going to be destroyed. He cannot get in. He cannot get in. Uh, our, our pastor today reminded us that the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. The church is advancing and the gates of hell will not stand against a church that is advancing, a kingdom of God that is advancing into the world. They will be destroyed. The gates of hell will. Jesus conquered. Jesus conquered. And the enemy knows it. And our unity as a body of Christ our unity is a sign that he will be destroyed. Be unified. And he wraps up by saying this beautiful thing, that you have been called to suffer for Christ, not only to believe in Jesus, but to suffer for him, just like you saw that I did, and you see that I still am. You've been called to suffer for Christ. Be unified. Be unified. Press on. Press on. 
in the name of Jesus. Thank you for joining me for the second half of chapter one of Philippians. Next time I'm here, we are going to cover only about 11 verses in Philippians chapter two, verses one through 11, as we cover one of the most beautiful poems in the scriptures about Jesus. So that will be a great joy to walk through that together. All right. I hope you have a great day. Bye.